Welcome to the Boardroom Governance Podcast. I'm your host, Evan Epstein. In this episode, I talk with Nicole Garçon-Mitchell, a Senior Vice President and the General Counsel at Glass-Lewis, one of the two major proxy advisory firms in the world. Glass-Lewis covers over 30,000 meetings each year across approximately 100 global markets. They have over 1,300 clients, including the majority of the world's largest pension plans, mutual funds, and asset managers, who collectively manage more than $40 trillion in assets. In this podcast, we discuss the history and current focus of Glass-Lewis and the evolution of corporate governance, stewardship, and engagement since she first joined the firm 16 years ago. We also talk about regulatory matters involving her industry and her general outlook towards corporate governance matters. If you'd like the show, please consider subscribing, leaving a review, or sharing this podcast on social media. You can find all the show notes on the website boardroom-governance.com, and please feel free to subscribe to the Boardroom Governance newsletter at evanepstein.substack.com. Hi, Nicole. This is so good to have you in the podcast. We have talked for a long time about uh, you coming in the podcast, so I'm glad that we're finally doing this. I'm very excited about discussing issues relevant to the proxy advisory business and corporate governance with you. So thank you very much for making it to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Evan. I'm very happy to be here. I'm honored. I saw the long list of people that have participated, and so I'm, I'm happy to be here. Thanks again. All right. Well, that's great. So as usual in our podcast, we're going to talk about you and talk about your background uh, before going into the corporate governance issues. And I know we have a lot to discuss because the proxy advisory business or industry has been in the limelight. So let's start with you. Where did you grow up? I actually um, was born in Los Angeles, but we moved to Mexico when I was seven years old. Um, and my parents kept their business in LA, so we moved back and forth throughout uh, the years, and I was probably spent equal amount of times in both places. Okay, and then um, and then where did you go to college or school? So I actually went to law school in Mexico, and mm-hmm. as you know, Evan, um, people who go to law school outside of the U.S. and and most common law countries, um, law school is right out of high school, and it's a five year program. So I decided to do that. Um, after I finished my law degree, I, I stuck around Mexico for a couple of years. I worked for a law firm. And then I moved back to California to take the California bar, which was a little bit intimidating because I hadn't been to law school here in the U.S. Um, but I did that. And then I realized um, that most foreign trained lawyers had an LLM. Um, so at that time, I decided to uh, go to Chicago, to Northwestern, which has a great program um, where you can take courses with Kellogg Business School as well. And I did that. Um, I finished my LLM. And then after that, I moved back to San Francisco. Interesting. So you took the bar off to law school in Mexico without the LLM, pre-LLM? I did. I did. I didn't know you could do that. Uh, Nobody told me that. (laughs) You couldn't. You could, actually. You can't do that anymore. Uh Um, They changed the, the rule. And so now you actually have to have one year of formal schooling before you can sit for the California bar. But I think the year I did that was the last year that they allowed you to do that. Okay. That's great. So uh, when you came back to San Francisco, you joined Glass-Lewis. So tell us about the beginning of uh, joining the industry. Yep. So when I first started, Glass-Lewis was a startup. It had Mm -hmm. just been founded, uh, I want to say 10 months uh, prior to me joining. And I was actually hired because they were looking for people with my background, um, with experience in law, finance, business, and also with multiple language skills. So I, I speak Spanish, English, and French fluently. Um, and so I was brought on to look at the corporate governance codes, if there were any, uh, more so the um, uh, commercial codes in those in, um, in places where I spoke the language. So uh, primarily continental Europe and Latin America. And I was tasked with coming up with our uh, policy guidelines for those markets. Um, I did that. I worked for about two proxy seasons, actually interpreting, writing our research reports, um, and then hiring eventually a team of analysts to oversee those uh, regions. Um, and then just basically my, my job there was done. And at the time, coincidentally, the two founders, both attorneys, uh, had left Glass Lewis and there was a spot for um, uh, an opening for, for in-house counsel. Glass Lewis had started to grow little by little, and so that need arose and I and I transitioned to that. 
Um, and I've been here ever since, 16 years. Yeah, 16 years. That's amazing. So let's maybe there are some listeners who are not so familiar with Glass Lewis or the proxy advisory business. So maybe let's go back in time. And uh, before Glass Lewis, there was one company, ISS, that was founded in uh, 1985, which is arguably the first uh, proxy advisor business. Why don't you tell us what proxy advisors do and then why did the founders of Glass Lewis start Glass Lewis? Um, so yes, as you mentioned, ISS had been around for about 30 years when Glass Lewis started. And I think what prompted uh, the creation of Glass Lewis was obviously there was a monopoly in the industry. There was only one player. Um, and there were a lot of things happening. You had the house and financial crisis, increased reforms such as Dodd-Frank, and then the accompanied by growing emphasis on stewardship, active engagement, and ESG, right? So um, there was a need for an additional player in the space. And as I mentioned... You, you, Glass- you, meant, you, you meant Sarbanes-Oxley, not Dodd-Frank, right? In 2000... I mean, Sarbanes-Oxley, yes. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. sorry, yes. Um, and so um, there was a need for an additional player in the, in the space. And uh, Greg Taxson, uh, former attorney, investment banker at Goldman Sachs, in addition with Kevin Cameron, also a former attorney... Uh, saw that opportunity. And so they decided to create Glass Lewis. Um, I think there, there was, you know, right time, right moment at the right time. Um, and there was a need for that. Um, in terms of how it's evolved, you know, back then, uh, proxy advisors essentially served an outsource function for institutional investors um, as it relates to proxy voting. They had increased demands, um, both from a fiduciary and a regulatory standpoint. And so we, we, Essentially, what we do is we write research on publicly held company shareholder meetings so that they don't actually have to spend the time and the resources to do that, given the vast amount of um, holdings that they have. And so we would provide, a, I like to say, a, if you're, I date myself, but a Cliff Notes version of a shareholder meeting so that they knew exactly the, what the major points um, and issues that they needed to focus on at those meetings uh, were. But that role has evolved um, throughout the years. You know, there's, a, as I mentioned, there's an increase, um, a, a focus on engagement, stewardship, ESG. And so now proxy advisors are more of a trusted, um, of a trusted partner for institutional investors to help navigate all those issues. So basically, you have one side, which is proxy research. And then on the other side, you have also a vote management services, right? You help the companies vote. And why don't you explain maybe that other side that is beyond research? Of course. So um, as you know, uh, this has changed actually as as the years have gone by, but we have a vote management platform. So um, companies have uh, thousands of ballots that they need to cast when once they've actually looked at the research, figured out how they want to align it with their policies and come out with their vote recommendations. But they need to make those votes heard and they need to get to the right place. So our platform viewpoint helps them do that. Um, Essentially what happens is clients come up with their uh, policy guideline. Uh, Most clients have a custom policy or they can sometimes base it off of the proxy advisor's policy and they ingest that into the system so that they can then apply their vote recommendations based on their policy directly into the ballots. And then those ballots get sent off to the ballot custodians and then they get cast. So Viewpoint actually helps our clients do that. And then it also has record keeping and reporting functionality so that they can then file any additional reports that they need to do, for example, NPX filings and and things of that nature. And is that all over the world? Is that US-based? No, that's all over the world. That's for all of our clients. And again, the complexity of that has increased throughout the years with regulation. For example, in Europe, we've seen SRD2. And so that's set up um, additional hurdles for our clients where they now have to disclose when they cast the ballot, when that vote was received. Um, And so having a platform to help you do that is is something that that is uh, is important. So how many clients does Glass Lewis have? We have about 1,300 clients globally. Um, We have uh, we actually have have the majority of pension fund clients in the world. asset managers, mutual funds, hedge funds. How many proxy research reports do you have every year? Like just to give some listeners the notion of how much goes into this. Of course. Um, We published about 28,000 research reports on public company meetings, and that's annual reports and um, 
special reports or extraordinary meetings or however you call them worldwide, they have different names, um, in 100 markets. Um, so we have a very extensive uh, coverage universe. So of those 28,000, probably what, six, 8,000 are, are US-based equity and the rest is the rest of the world? I'd say that's, that's pretty accurate. There is, there, most of it is in the US, but we've actually seen about a 20% increase in the last uh, four years. And that increase has been in the APAC region, mainly mm -hmm. um, just seeing investors focusing more on China and other markets. So just so, so you know, Evan, mm -hmm. our, our coverage universe is, um, it actually increases based on the needs of our clients. Mm -hmm. So if our clients um, all of a sudden decide they want to hold companies in India, for example, then our Indian coverage universe will increase because we will be forced to cover those, those companies. And those teams that cover all over the world, I mean, obviously it's different to read annual reports from Indian companies or Chinese companies or European companies. It means you have local teams or somebody is covering that from the US. How, does, how do you distribute your proxy research among geographies? We have teams for each geography and we have offices um, across the world. So we have an office in Sydney, an office in Ireland, in the UK, in Germany, Tokyo, um, here in the U.S., we have a few offices, and so we have analysts in those spread out through those offices that focus on these geographies, and they all speak the different languages, and they all have experience looking at the filings for those for those markets. So can I ask you a bit of a technical question? So obviously, in the United States, a lot of the institutional investors have a lot of weight, uh, 70, 75 percent of the market, which is very different to markets like in Latin America or maybe Europe or maybe Asia where you have a lot of the controlling shareholders or family or states that own the majority. So maybe the weight of the vote of institutional investors in those markets are not as relevant or at least not as weighty because they may have, you know, 5% of the equity in these markets. Does that impact at all or your job is exactly the same? It's just Our relevant. job is exactly the same. Yeah. Our job yeah. is exactly the same. Yeah. Our job is essentially to analyze all those filings and um, condense them in a format that's easily digestible and, and, and so that we can come up with vote recommendations based on our clients' custom policies. So it really doesn't matter if, uh, how strong their vote will be in that particular jurisdiction. Yeah. And, and how much of a issue is the information that you get in these markets? I'm sure in some markets, it's harder to get information, maybe in English, maybe in a timely manner, maybe the information, the bio of the directors. Is that still an issue? I mean, I, I, I know internationally that's been an issue, but maybe how do you see that from, from your perspective? I mean, I think it's gotten better. Granted, I'm not in the research, uh, doing the research reports anymore. But from when I remember, it was it was challenging. There were definitely right. certain markets where you had to go looking for the materials. They weren't always available. Um, to your point, companies that are less, uh, their portfolios are less diversified and are focused more on families have less disclosure. Um, and it, it, it's a challenge. But I think it's actually gotten better throughout the years. Um, and hence the reason why we also have people that can understand and read and write in different languages so that they can actually look at those documents in their original format. Cause you can, they're not always um, English versions available. Mm -hmm. Are there local advisory companies in different markets that have come up and that at some level may be competing or, or maybe have their own local flavor? I mean, obviously in the U S ISS and Glass Lewis, you're the two big uh, players probably 80% of the market or institutional investors are covered by you. Uh, is that an evolving industry? It's a very tough industry. Unfortunately, there are a lot of barriers to entry, but there are um, proxy advisors outside of the U.S. Um, in fact, Glass-Lewis and ISS both are part of a group called the Best Practice Principles Group. Um, it's mm -hmm. an initiative that um, stemmed out of uh, European uh initiatives to try to regulate proxy advisors. And we created this group to try to come up with a regulatory code of conduct that we could all follow. Um, and then uh, as part of that, so there, there are other proxy advisor firms. There's a proxy advisor firm in the UK. There's one in France. Uh, there used to be one in Germany, IVOX. And we actually acquired them. So they're now part of us. Uh, way back when there was um, CGI in Australia, we also acquired them. So yet yeah, you do see uh, proxy advisors that actually focus on their specific markets. But again, it's it's a hard industry. 
Um, it requires a lot of work, a lot of resources. And so I think that's why we haven't seen any other uh, large proxy advisors um, come out. I mean, obviously it would be great if we could have more competition, but um, it, is a, it is a difficult industry. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I was talking uh, the last podcast with, uh, with Aisha Mustagni from Calsters, and, and she mentioned, obviously she says that she uses uh, Glass Lewis and, and ISS, and she kind of made a mention that she wishes there were more advisors because the more information you know pension funds or institutional investors have, uh, the more they can make a decision on, on information. So it's interesting. It's interesting to see how this market evolves. So let's talk a little bit uh, about uh, core governance issues now. One of the interesting elements is how engagement has changed between issuers and institutional investors or ad proxy advisors like, like yourself. Let me ask you, how many engagements do you conduct and how does that process work for issuers? I mean, uh, the weight that you have in your voting recommendations with 1,300 clients is very big. And, and so how does the engagement work from the issuer perspective, both with proxy advisors and with the institutional investors themselves? Of course. So this is an area where Glass-Lewis has made a lot of progress in the past few years. Um, and I, I want to take us a little bit back to where we started. When Glass-Lewis started, um, we really were a black box. Our, our whole foundation was based on we're the independent proxy advisor. We just uh, address you know, these matters with our institutional investor clients. We take all the publicly available information out there by public companies, but we don't engage with them. Um, and that just was because um, you might uh, remember that the business model that ISS had was they would consult with issuers and then they would also um, write the report. So there was a, a lot of contradiction way back then on, on that. Um, but th that has evolved. Um, we then since then realized there's been a lot of regulatory pressure uh, for us to be more active with companies to be able to hear that side of the story. And so what we did was we came out with a model where we engage with companies for free outside the solicitation period. Um, and so we, those are, when, when, when you refer to engagements, those are the numbers that I'm going to be providing you with mm -hmm. because we engage with companies many different ways, but mm -hmm. our engagement meetings are actually those outside of the solicitation period meetings where we meet with executives and people from companies with our research analysts. And we actually talk about policy. We talk about what our methodologies are, how we view different corporate governance issues, things that we might be thinking about for an upcoming proxy season. Um, and we've held about 1,500 of those meetings um, a year. And those are across 40 countries in about 20 plus languages. Um, so that's what we do from a from an engagement standpoint in terms of meetings, but there are different ways that Glasslist engages with companies as well. Um, we have different um, products and programs, both free and, uh, and, and paid. Um, one of them is, for example, we came up with a, a thing called the IDR, where we provide uh, companies that wish to participate with a fact version of our report. So they can go and cross check to make sure that all the information we're using is accurate. Um, most recently, and we'll cover this when we talk about regulation, I'm assuming we're going to be talking about regulation, um, we have something called the report feedback statement. And that's also another mechanism where companies can uh, voice their concerns on our actually published research. And we have that unedited feedback attached to the back of our report and sent directly to our investor clients. So it's a way for companies to have their voice heard um, on the criticism that proxy advisors might have. Uh, with respect to their meetings. And I think that's something that is extremely valuable and is also a component of how Glass-Lewis engages with, with companies. So who do you talk to from the issuer side? Is it management? Is it maybe boards? It depends on who wants to talk to us and it depends, it varies and it varies on the market, depending on the market as well, but it's, it's all of the above. And is it outbound or inbound? I mean, how many companies do you actually reach out versus the companies reaching out to you? It's actually more inbound than mm -hmm. it is outbound. And I assume it's because some issuer maybe didn't like what you were recommending and they call you and say, hey, we want to talk about your policy or your vote recommendation. Correct. Interesting. Okay. So are there differences, by the way, in this type of engagement in the US versus internationally? And I say this because, again, in the U.S., this feature of 
institutional investors vote mattering so much, engagement is much higher as compared to maybe Latin America, right? Where they don't engage as a, a typical matter. And is that, is that impact or how do you make that difference between different markets? So the, the, the content of the engagement is what actually would change, I think. You're right that the level of engagement is much more, uh, there's more engagement in the US and, and in other markets, Europe as well, than in, for example, Latin America. Um, but I think the actual content of those meetings is similar. It's, I mean, it's an, it's, there's not much to it, right? If they want to talk about, as you indicated, our policies, how we're viewing things. Um, and then I would say that the content of the meetings also depend on who's in that meeting. Um, to your point before, you know, if you meet with an executive versus a, a director, it's going to be a very different conversation. And also it depends on what they want to talk about. For example, executive comp matters, say on paper proposals are a big, uh, point of interest in the U.S. and they might not be. I mean, compensation is still important in Europe, but it's handled differently. So that conversation will be different. Um, one thing I will say is our rules are the same. Our rules of engagement are the same. In fact, we just uh, published or uh, about to publish our uh, global engagement policy, so companies understand what those are. Uh, like I mentioned, most of the time, majority of the times, it's outside the solicitation period, and then we also do not take any material non-public information. So it has to all be based on information that's publicly, that's been made publicly available already by the company. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you you did mention regulation. So now, now we get into, into the deep of it. You know, what's going on with the proxy advisory industry? Latest administration in the US had uh, a strong regulations uh, from the SEC and the Department of Labor. Can you walk us through what are the different evolutions? Sure. And this is where I put this conversation on autopilot because this is actually the <laughs> what I do every day. Okay. Um, and so, yes, there's actually been an unprecedented amount of, regula of regulation in, in this space. Um, you know, historically, there wasn't any. Um, as I mentioned to you, practice advisors were born because institutional investors have this fiduciary duty to vote proxies. Uh, proxies are considered assets, and so they need to make sure that they're they're tending to those. And so, up until now, there really wasn't. Proxy advisors uh, haven't been a regulated industry. I mean, there have been regulations that indirectly apply to us through our clients, uh, but we haven't been the target of a of a you know regulation. Um, so. This has been something that has been going on for years, uh, for the past, I want to say, maybe the past five years. Uh, I've been primarily focused on regulatory um, initiatives. And this past year was a year when we saw a lot of change. Um, so as you know, we saw that the SEC issued some proposed rules for proxy advisors. But at the same time, they issued a guidance for our um, investment advisor clients. Um, we also saw some new rulemaking at the DOL. So that actually applies to our uh, private retirement plan and asset managers that are subject to ERISA clients. And um, I, I think I'll start uh, with why this has come into fruition. And I think, you know, I don't want to blame um, the companies, but I think, you know, companies don't like us. They, they, mm -hmm. they haven't historically, it's not that they don't like us, but I think they feel the threat. Um, that we come out and call them on it if, you know, for example, executives get overpaid and the company's underperforming. And so who's, who's going to like that, right? Mm -hmm. um, but I think that, um, I, I don't think all companies view us that way. I think it's just been a, a subset of companies that, that feel threatened by us. And so they've made a really good big push um, politically to try to have us regulated. Um, and initially, the way uh, they, they, you know, founded this was that, our research was rifled with errors. Um, and that was kind of where it started. Oh, they make all these mistakes. They have all these errors in their reports. How can we trust them? You know, institutional investors are, are, are voting based on what they have to say and half of what they say is wrong. And that's actually a, a huge misconception. I mean, if you look at our error rate, it's actually less than 1%. Um, and even in the actual rulemaking of the SEC, they, uh, there was footnote where they actually said that, yes, practice advisors did not have um, the number of mistakes that, that companies um, indicate they did. So, you know, the rules came out, they were adopted on a party line vote, they were rushed through before the administration as, as you change of administration, as you mentioned. And um, 
when they came out, they weren't as bad as what we thought they were going to say. Initially, they um, indicated that uh, they thought that we should share our reports uh, for free with the companies before we shared those reports with our clients and then allow the companies to provide feedback, us to take that into consideration, implement it, and then give it to them again, and then give it to our investor advisor clients. You might have heard about mm -hmm. all that. Sure. Um, that's not where we ended up. Uh, we ended up in a much in a much better position. Um, that being said, uh, we were still a bit disappointed with the process and substance of those rules. So where um, did you end up? Where we ended up was um, that we are now considered a, a proxy solicitor. So what they did was they um, they, they 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 the SECs basically stated that what we do proxy advice is considered a solicitation. Um, but we can rely on exemptions to the to those rules, provided we satisfy certain conditions. Um, and those conditions are that we make the research available to companies either at the same time or after we make that research available to our clients, and that we provide a feedback mechanism for those companies to provide their opinions on that research, and we somehow distribute that to our clients. Um, and so... I see you shaking your head. Glassless already has that. We actually um, launched that uh, product a few months before the regulation came out. So, you know, for us, it's it's um, we were in a pretty good position in that we had already put that mechanism in place, um, and we actually do make our reports available to companies for a small fee, um, and they can get that report at the same time as our clients get that report. Um, so good in the business, end, then. Exactly. In the end, it didn't end up being uh, that bad for us. Obviously, there are some more nuances in the rule that um, are a bit problematic. And, and you know, it, it requires um, more work for, for our clients. They, um, they did have issue a guidance at the same time with a bunch of things that our clients need to make sure they're looking into when engaging a proxy advisor. But, you know, we conduct many, many uh, meetings with our clients. Clients are very active. They engage with us all the time. We have due diligence meetings. They make sure that we're, um, you know, dotting all the I's, crossing all the T's. And so I think the guidance was just essentially um, to reiterate that institutional investors need to make sure that they're um, looking at their policies, uh, knowing what's out there, and not just following our, our advice uh, without having any involvement, which, which they actually don't. I'm I'm curious. How how many people uh, work at Glass Lewis, and and how many of them are focused on proxy research? Wow, you know our our uh, research department is is quite large, and it actually increases. It, it pretty much doubles in size during proxy season. Mm -hmm. um, so I wouldn't be able to tell you the exact amount of how many analysts we have, but we have a lot of them. As I told you, we have them for different geographies, but we also have specific teams focused on, on um, matters such as we have an executive comp team, we have an M&A team, we have um, an ESG team. So, um, you know, once you start adding all those numbers, so there's a lot of analysts. But I wouldn't so so it's interesting. Either. You mentioned that it changes in, in the proxy season. That means that uh, you, you just bring more people in that time as contractors? We hire... Um, we, we hire, uh, we call them research associates. And so we bring a number of folks in to help us um, just analyze uh, the, the, the look through, sift through all those proxy filings and input data um, and all of that work because it is a lot of work uh, going through all those documents. And then we obviously have our permanent research team that is well-versed in our guidelines, um, have been at Glassless for years, uh, and they're the ones that are actually helping uh, create the actual analysis and, and recommendations. You know, one, one side question, and I think this is also interesting because of the change of ownership that ISS uh, just announced, I think last year, can you talk about the ownership of Glass Lewis? I mean, how is the industry, like maybe people don't know. Sure, sure. We um, are owned by two of the largest pension plans in Canada, the Ontario Teachers Pension Plan Board and um, Alberta Investment Management, AIMCO. Um, and they are pretty uh, independent owner. Owner, We're basically a portfolio company of the, of the two companies. Um, that being said, Ontario Teachers Pension Plan is a, is a Glass Lewis client. 
Um, they do subscribe to our research, but um, they're pretty much, uh, they're not really involved in our day-to-day -day management at all. Um, and, you know, that's an area where folks have said, well, how is that possible? And, you know, the reality is we're doing our own thing. They're essentially just our owners. Um, but we do have a very robust conflict uh, policy and procedure. And so we've put in place mechanisms so that um, we can disclose if we feel that there is a potential conflict. And so we'll add that on the bottom of our, of our research report at the front of, of the front of paper. And, and when was that acquisition done? Uh, the OTPP acquired uh, a 100% stake in Glasslist. I believe it was in 2007. Okay. And then a few years later, AIMCO acquired 20%. Okay. From Interesting. Mm -hmm. And Glassless obviously is a private company. Yes, we are a private company. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Any SPAC? Any? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. Okay, so you know, the, it's it's really interesting to look at the evolution of 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 this industry. One common criticism uh, from the governance side, at least, or, or the academic side, has been this approach to corporate governance as check the box, right? Like what uh, is good governance and and how are recommendations done based on what premises, right? What is your approach to that kind of criticism in, in, in which, you know, there are certain parameters and you set a guideline and, for example, you may say you don't want chairs to be, um, you know, a CEO, you want, you know, X amount of independent directors or you, you may want certain uh, things that you think are good or bad. How do you think about those issues? Because it is a tough issue to, to create a guideline that, in your case, applies to every single market and you put, you know, you, you put a single brush to everybody when companies are different. And, and how do you think about those issues that I assume must be very complicated inside your own black box of recommendations? Yes, that is true. And so there are various... Um places where we actually gather information so that we make sure that we not only cover everything, but we also are looking at the different points of view. And so, for example, um, you know, what moves this more, what moves the needle really is our institutional investor client base, right? And so the things that matter to them, um, as I mentioned to you, you know, they come up with their custom policies, uh, we meet with them, we help them go through that, but that also helps us understand what, what they are more focused on. Um, we also have a research advisory council formed of um, a group of people in the industry that are either veterans or have experience from different areas. Um, and we meet with them once a year and we talk about um, you know, what's going on in this market, what uh, topics should we be focusing on. And so, you know, we pull from different areas. Um, we also look at regulations in different markets and see, because, you know, not all markets are um, like the U.S. Certain markets, you're just basically stuck within the confines of a particular regulation. And so we look at that. Um, and we then make a, an assessment and we look at our policy guidelines every year. Uh, we update them. In fact, this just happened. Um, we started um, posting this everywhere so that companies can now also be uh, aware of those guidelines. I think in the past, there was criticism that we didn't make our policy guidelines readily available to companies. And I don't know if that's just because maybe they weren't that easy to find on our website, but we're actually trying to make an effort to um, have those out there. And then we also have specialized policies that derive from those policy guidelines, and we're also making those publicly available. So if you actually go on our website, you can pull down and see not only our guidelines for this year, but the guidelines we've used in the past, um, as well as our specialty guidelines for specific, you know, how we how do we approach a minimum tra transaction? How do we approach a contested meeting and things like that? Interesting. So let, let's dig into some specific issues. So one strong part of governance that has received a lot of attention is board diversity. And uh, California has had these couple of laws, uh, SBA 26 a couple of years ago, and AB 979 uh, just this uh, past year, where there is gender diversity pushed to public companies in California headquarter companies, and also minorities. And also 
NASDAQ pushed a diversity proposal to the SEC. How do you think about diversity from Glass-Lewis in terms of uh, board diversity? And, and, and what are the trends that you are perceiving in the market? Of course. So before we go there, I want to say that I'm personally very excited about all of these initiatives. Um, mm -hmm. Obviously, I'm biased because I'm a woman and I'm also mm -hmm. Latina. Mm -hmm. But I think, you know, like everything else, um, it, diversity has, uh, diversity on boards has been something that has been slowly progressing. And I'm happy to see that recent events have accelerated this. Um, as it relates to Glass-Lewis, uh, we've always uh, looked at diversity on boards, whether it be gender um, or, you know, race. Um, what we're doing um, in terms of our policies is we're obviously promoting all of our clients to use best practices in order to uh, protect long-term shareholder value by taking into consideration the diversity of boards. Uh, but also starting this proxy season, we are going to be rating the quality of company disclosures around several measures of diversity, including director race and ethnicity. Uh, we're not going to be voting against uh, boards yet on this but we are going to be rating the quality of disclosure. So we think that it's very important for companies to actually disclose uh, the diversity of their board members. Up until now, I think it hasn't been ideal because not all companies report uh, the ethnicity of their members. So I think it's been a, something where you actually look at the photos and you try to figure out, oh, is that person diverse? Or, oh, is that last name sound like it's diverse? And that's really not an accurate measurement. What we want to try to do is push companies to actually self-disclose so that we have accurate information to then um, provide those uh, vote recommendations. Um, what we will be doing is, um, in terms of uh, gender, is we do vote against uh, if, if they don't if there isn't one female on the board. And then starting in 2022, we'll require a minimum of two women on boards with limited exceptions. Um, but again. We look at these rules um, continuously, definitely on an annual basis. So once applicable state or stock exchange rules come into effect, um, we will require companies to follow them. You know, the other big question on governance, uh, which is uh, percolating both in academia, but also in the media and in the industry, is the purpose of the corporation, right? Whereas before there was a strong focus on maximizing shareholder value on the long term, now the stakeholder capitalism is, is being touted as the way to go. And this has been prompted on the one hand by the Business Roundtable in 2019, and, and there is a lot of discussion among governance practitioners. And so my question is, you know, where does Glass-Lewis uh, fall in this kind of debate? And, and how do you think about these issues that may sound trivial, but ultimately it is not because it, it goes into the duties of directors and perceptions of what on, and how companies operate? Of course. Yep. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think more companies should embrace stakeholderism. I mean, it's a win-win because it not only um, helps you connect with your customers and employees, um, but it also results in long-term profitability. I mean, Larry Fink uh, actually released a letter not that long ago where he said that, you know, in the end, companies can apply tactics that will maximize returns in the short term. But again and again, um, in the long term, they'll actually damage society and ultimately destroy shareholder value. And I think that he summarized that quite nicely. Um, you know, 10 years ago, this would have been inconceivable on Wall Street. But I think, um, you know, the rise of stakeholder governance has really placed an emphasis on key sustainability topics and ESG activism. And, um, you know, we've seen it in the form of activist uh, shareholder proposals um, that are acting that are asking companies to improve their sustainability policies, climate risk reporting, um, human capital management. And so, I think that it's something that that um, companies really need to take into into consideration more and more. Yeah, let, let's talk a little bit about that. So you mentioned ESG, right? Which is kind of the new version of the CSR, which used to be corporate social responsibility. Now it's environmental, social, and governance. How do you see this evolution of ESG? And has it really changed? Is it really a different uh, focus than what we used to have? Um, no, I don't think it's a different focus. I mean, the focus, I think, is the same, but I think that people are just more aware 
people are just more aware. And I think before companies would maybe just brush it off. Now they're realizing that, you know, their shareholders are really concerned about these things. And I think um, one of the things that I would say to companies is, um, you know, you should actually pay attention to what your shareholders are saying, because uh, before you, you know, activists were, were, were a bit more controversial, but I think now even your more passive investors are um, applying activist tactics so to, to attract their attention. So I, I do think that um, while the focus is still there, it's just more heightened. You mentioned activist, and obviously shareholder activism is a big part of governance and public companies in the US. And you know there are many campaigns per year. How do you see this evolution? And you kind of mentioned the now activists, so a little bit more focus on the ESG side or sustainability side. But uh, you know, how do you think or how do you approach these activist uh, campaigns that may cater more now to get the vote of institutional investors and maybe even at some level seek the vote or recommendation or, or the good graces of Glass-Lewis and ISS? Because if you vote in favor, if you recommend, then it's it's real economic value, right? So how do you think about shareholder activism? Um, you know, I think uh, there are pros and cons of shareholder activism. I think, you know, you also don't want to see all these shareholder proposals that might not amount to, to, to anything. But um, I think it's important because I think it's a way for companies to actually see what their shareholders are interested in. Um, and I think it's now more than ever, it's critical for directors to understand the priorities of their largest shareholders. Um, and sometimes um, these concerns, um, you know, you see them in a shareholder proposal and they might not initially be a direct concern, but then you start seeing more of them. And so then I think that's a way for the companies to see that uh, they, these are legitimate concerns. They're not just some activists trying to uh, push an agenda, but it's actually something that they really do need to focus on. And does Glass-Lewis have some sort of contested team or contested election, you know, when there is a real alternate slate or something, do you have some sort of special way to provide recommendations in those cases? So we will provide, uh, we do write contested meeting reports. Um, and one of the things that we do when we engage is, for example, um, we will engage with both sides. So we'll actually do that so that both sides can be heard. And another thing that we do, which um, doesn't come up that frequently anymore, but we have something called the proxy talk. So if both sides actually want to come and express their views, We'll actually do that in an open forum that we record, and then we can make that available to our client base so that they can actually hear both sides of the story. Do you have any parting thoughts for directors? I mean, how do you perceive the evolution of the role of directors? And being at Glass for 16 years, I'm sure you've seen the evolution through different crises, and, and certainly governance has changed its output towards different emphasis on different issues, you know, what would be a recommendation that you would give to directors of public companies in the U.S.? Of course, I would say, um, number one, be engaged. Uh, number two, know your shareholder base. And three, have a plan. Um, as it relates to proxy advisors, I would say, um, you know, stop viewing proxy advisors as a threat. Uh, we're actually in a unique position. And I, I would encourage companies to take the opportunity to engage with us. Um, and to hear what we have to say, because, you know, we then go and uh, we're the trusted advisor to the, your, your, your investors. And so, um, you know, you should learn how we view your company as well as your peers, um, demonstrate a willingness to adopt emerging best practices, particularly around ESG, um, and just, you know, reach out. Like I mentioned to you, Evan, um, we, for example, we just launched uh, last week something called the Governance Hub for Public Companies. So we're trying, really trying to play our part in making sure that companies understand our policies, have a way to access our reports, um, check, fact check the, the data that we use. Um, and then also, you know, if they're still not happy with what we've published, they can provide feedback and we'll make it available to our clients. So I really would encourage them to to take a look at uh, their proxy advisors and, and engage with them. And, and I think, you know, use us as a, as a way to connect uh, with, the, with the investors. 
That's great. And do you see, by the way, any change now with the new administration? I mean, any prediction on how maybe regulatory outlooks for the industry will change? Yes, definitely. I think we're going to have to keep a close watch on the next few months. Um, a lot can happen. There's speculation that the proxy rules could be part of the Congressional Review Act. And that essentially means that if they are, they would be rolled back um, and they would no longer apply. Um, but we, we also know that, um, you know, there's, there's constant push, not only in the U.S. I mean, just last week, uh, the Canadian Ontario Task Force came out with uh, recommendations on proxy advisors and a wide range of uh, corporate governance issues that they're looking at. Um, India has also spent some time looking at proxy advisor regulation. You know, we've seen uh, ESMA in Europe, and that's where how we proved the BPP came into place. And so, yes, I think proxy advisors inevitably will continue to be uh, looked at and, and we'll, we'll continue to see, to see what happens in, in that regard. You're probably positive about what's coming up or you, you don't know. I, I mean, I am. I think it's exciting. Like I said, we've evolved tremendously. We used to be a provider where essentially they would outsource our you know, filings and we'd basically tell them what was in there. Now we've we're more of a partner with our clients and not only the institutional investors, but also the companies. And so we're in a, we're in a unique spot. I think it's, it's very exciting. I think. Okay. No, that's great. All right. Let's shift to some rapid fire questions. And, and let me ask you, what are the one to three books that have greatly influenced your life? Um, so I wouldn't say these books have greatly influenced my life, but I was thinking about um, this and uh, I would say that there's a book I read a while ago. It's an older book and actually recommended by my mom um, called Distant Neighbors by Alan Writing. Um, and it actually does a great job of explaining the relationship between the U.S. and Mexico and how complex it is. Um, you know, the title it says we're neighbors, but we're actually very different. And I think it mm -hmm. portrays how different both countries are, but how, and you know, they've made it work. Um, the second book is more of a professional book. Um, you've probably read it, uh, Give and Take by Adam Grant. Um, I really enjoyed reading that book. It's, um, he's an amazing professor at Wharton. And mm -hmm. I really, re really resonated with me how he categorized people, um, you know, givers, takers, and matchers. And I think that um, I really enjoyed how he disproved the misconception that takers are more successful than givers. Um, and now more I haven't than, read it, by the way. It's but, actually very good. And now more yeah. than ever, I think, People always think, especially in corporate America, that you need to like say, move out of my way. I'm coming and I'm, I'm and go at the top. And actually, you know, he disproves that. Um, people who involve others in their growth and um, work in the team actually end up being more successful than than those people, than those other people that he calls um, takers. It's a very interesting book. Um, I would say those, those two books. Okay. And uh, who were your mentors and what did you learn from them? Um, yeah, so I've had a few mentors throughout my life. I would say that my first met professional mentor was um, a, a lawyer by the name of Jorge Robles, with whom I worked with in Mexico when I was back then. He um, had a similar background. Um, he actually went to go get his LLM at NYU and studied for the New York Bar, um, but decided to stay in Mexico. And so when I heard about that, I thought, you know, that's interesting, um, having the dual law degree um, and, and just kind of going outside the box, not just staying in Mexico and working for a law firm. So he, he, um, he was someone that I, I um, admired and just decided to, to follow in his footsteps, ended up um, different places. But um, I would say that he, he inspired me to do what, what I did um, professionally. And then um, another mentor would be Katie Raven. I think you know Katie. She sure. um, is a veteran of the proxy industry and we worked together for 15 years. Um, former CEO of Glass Lewis. And so Katie and I navigated the regulatory industry um, before uh, she, she moved on. And, and um, I have a lot of uh, appreciation for Katie and, and where Glass Lewis is uh, this day. Okay. And are there any quotes that you think of often or you live your life by? Yes. Um, I would say don't put off until tomorrow what you can do today. Mm. Um, I'm just a very hyper person. And I think that's just innate. It's ne not necessarily a, a motto that I follow, but it's just I feel like, you know, if you can do it now, just get it done. You never know what tomorrow is going to be like. Yeah. Um, and so I do that, you know, every day, even with my kids, too. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, I think that's that's something very important. 
And is there an unusual habit or an absurd thing that you love? Um, well, it's not absurd, but I actually love to sing. Um, okay. I come from a family of singers and I didn't oh, wow. take that path, but um, it's still near and dear in my heart. And so if, uh, you know, anyone that knows, has known me for years knows that I will never pass up on a karaoke night. Oh, wow. Uh, That's a lot fun. Of fun. Yep. What kind of singing? Um, well, my mom used to sing. She actually recorded um, uh, a few songs uh, a few years back, and it was mostly in Spanish. It was uh, bolero. Okay. Uh, and then um, my grandmother used to sing as well. So just a musical musical family. My um, my great grandfather actually um, was a famous trumpet player. He actually played the trumpet in um, soundtracks like Gone with the Wind, and um, wow. these boots were made for walking. And so yeah, musical background. Wow. Well, I suppose that's the LA connection, right? Yep, yep, from my grandfather, my American yeah. grandfather, yes. Yeah. You know, which living person do you most admire? Um, you know, there are a lot of women I admire. Um, I would say, you know, Kamala Harris, um, Nancy Pelosi, Michelle Obama. But I, but I think the person that I most admire the most that is still living is my father. Um, he has a very inspiring story. He is an immigrant, an entrepreneur in the U.S. in a very small industry. Uh, you know, kind of reminds me of, of Glass Lewis, very small industry. He came to the U.S. He opened up a company on his own, um, was very successful. And, um, you know, I'm thankful to him and my mom for the sacrifices they made. And if it weren't for them, I wouldn't be here speaking to you. So I think that that's really the person that I, I admire the most. All right. Well, Nicole, it's been great. Thank you very much for your time and, and talking to us about Glass Lewis and the proxy advisory industry and your outlook on governance. These are very important issues that I'm sure a lot of directors and issuers are interested. Hopefully we'll see each other again soon when this COVID is, is better and we all vaccinated and doing good. That would be great. Thanks, Evan. I take care and I have a, you have a great day too. And thanks again for having me. All right. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you for tuning in to the Boardroom Governance Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing, leaving a review, or sharing this podcast on social media. If you'd like to reach out to me, you can just find me on LinkedIn or Twitter at Evan Epstein. You can also check out all the details related to this podcast on the website boardroom-governance.com. And please feel free to subscribe to the Boardroom Governance newsletter at evanepstein.substack.com.